So um, uh, if you were here last week, you remember we, we talked about the spiritual combat, that it can actually affect us. And we delineated the ways in which this uh, cosmic conflict, which Jesus assumes is going on around us, affects every human heart. Discouragement, deceit, the drawing of temptation, uh, division, destruction, all of these things. Now, as we were delineating all the ways in which uh, we are affected in the world in this way, some of you might have said, well, you know, really, are we going to have to go to spiritual cosmic conflict? Maybe some of you thought, well, that isn't spiritual agency lying to you. That's just you not thinking straight. You know, that's just you being muddle-headed. Or maybe you thought, well, that isn't spiritual evil resisting you. That's just a natural disaster. That's just human decision. Someone bad did something bad to you. Look, Christians don't negate material causes, but they make a distinction between proximate causes and ultimate causes. And we do this, by the way, all the time in sociology, biology, all over the place. The distinction between proximate, which means close, proximate causes, and ultimate causes. The proximate causes are the ones that you see sort of right away, uh, it, you know, being at fault, as it were. And the ultimate causes are like the causes behind the scenes, the, the real reasons, as it were. So, for example, you know, you say, well, the boat sink. Well, why did the boat sink? Well, the proximate cause was that uh, it uh, had a hole in the hull and then it was inundated with water and it could no longer stay afloat. But the ultimate cause was that it struck a rock, which opened up the hole. And you can keep this going back farther. You say, well, why did it strike a rock? Well, it struck a rock because the navigation systems went haywire. Well, why did the navigation systems go here? Well, because the programmer was negligent in his duty. Well, why was he negligent in his duty? Well, the ultimate cause was that he was having uh, deep personal problems, and so that affected his work. You see, you can delineate between proximate and ultimate, and in this way, Christians don't negate that spiritual evil can be part of the, the ultimate causation for much misery, destruction, and evil in this world. And this helps us. Just being able to delineate between these two things helps us a lot. Why? Well, it helps us because it helps us endure. It helps us to overcome a lot of the hardship in this world if we can delineate between the proximate causes and the ultimate causes. It helps us not blame God and lose faith in the world, lose faith as we walk in this world. It helps us to not attack the wrong things. Let me just give you an example of how this helps us, just understanding the battle. Uh, this is a story that came out from Samaritan's Purse. This was several years ago now. Uh, 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 did a series of articles on the brutal persecution that was going on in uh, the Sudan. And um, about five years ago now, there was a story told about a pastor who was singled out by Muslim revolutionaries, and he was bound by his hands and drugged behind a tank for several miles. He was left for dead. Well, he survived. And what happened was he lost an eye, and uh, his hands are wrecked for life. And now I just want you to imagine that happened to you. So that happens to you. So now imagine your reaction. What would you say? I mean, because this is now your life. No more productive manual labor. Uh, no more eating normally. You're going to have to be fed like a child for the rest of your life. Uh, no more throwing a baseball with your kid. No more caressing your wife. And this all happened to this pastor. All this stuff happened to a real guy just recently. And yet when he emerged from the hospital after treatment, he was actually recorded as saying this. If I lift these withered hands to heaven, may they point the way to the Lord Jesus Christ. Huh. I mean, it's just so odd. 
And you say, well, Rick, how is that odd? Well, it's odd because of what it's missing. What is missing from this picture of this pastor emerging from the hospital, giving glory to God? Well, resentment towards God, that's what's missing. Not, don't see any of that in his statement or his actions afterwards. No cries of, why, God, did you allow this to happen to me? There was no agonizing over the, quote, problem of evil. There was no apathy. There was no withdrawing. There was no self-pity. There was no leaving the church because all that religion is filled with a bunch of hypocrites and they do mean and terrible things. Why, why was none of that part of the reaction of this guy? I submit to you, friends, it's because he gets it. You say, he gets what? He gets that he's in a war, and he understands the difference between proximate and ultimate causation. He read the fine print, and he knows that when Jesus called him, he called him to a cause, to self-denial, to sacrifice, and to being a soldier in a spiritual war for the soul of the world. He got it. Therefore, he expected to take hits. He expected trouble. And so what about those who maimed his body? He could probably name his persecutors. What about them? They caused this whole thing. Well, he understands proximate and ultimate causation. Yes, flesh and blood marred his flesh and blood. Behind them, malevolent spiritual evil exists. And so guess what that allows him to do? Forgive them, which he did publicly and love them. And so his Christian community would warmly embrace those Muslim revolutionaries when they defected. So this is what he can do. This is an amazing thing to me. Why? Because he read the fine print and he gets it. Now the question is, have you and are you? Have you read the fine print and are you an overcomer? Are you an overcomer like this? You say, well, what's the fine print? Here's some fine print. Matthew, or uh, rather, rather Paul's instruction to his young apprentice, Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 3, the Bible says, Endure suffering along with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. And as Christ's soldier, do not let yourself become tied up in the affairs of this life, literally civilian affairs. For then you cannot satisfy the one who has enlisted you in his army. Now, I submit to you that many Christians in the West, because we are very pampered, do not often act like spiritual soldiers. We don't get this. We haven't read the fine print, or we're not embracing it fully for our situation. Because if we were, if we saw ourselves as spiritual soldiers, one thing we would understand is that bad things happen. Bad things happen to soldiers. I mean, there's a lot of you who've done military service in this room, and you kind of got it, right? That when you sign up, bad things are going to happen. If nothing else, through your training, which was a boatload of hard things that happened to you. Why? Because combat. Because combat. That's it. That's all you needed to know. You knew that trouble was in the, in the offing. When you signed up as a soldier, we on the other hand, that is to say us, Western Christians, very often expect from our faith blessing and health and wealth alone. And when we don't get these then wow, we are troubled, we are discouraged, we defect from the faith, we uh, blame God, we want a pound of flesh from the person who dared to cross us, and that's the way we think about it, and we've completely forgotten the fine print. Here's more fine print. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, our theme verse for the month. Paul says, 
For we are not fighting against people made of flesh and blood, but against the evil rulers and the authorities of the unseen world, against these mighty powers of darkness who rule this world, and against wicked spirits in the heavenly realms. Well, now in extended, we'll talk a little bit more about whether we have good reasons to believe that this even exists, but this is the worldview of the New Testament. Now you say, well, this is uh, this this whole militaristic language. This is a problem, man. I mean, this is why religious people they fight each other. They have all this militaristic thinking. Well, you know, it's true that uh, the Muslim revolutionaries who drug that pastor behind the tank they also see themselves as holy warriors. There's no question, and they will maim and kill. And some of the radical elements will strap bombs to their bodies as expressions of their view of cosmic conflict. That's the way they look at spiritual conflict. So how's that different from you? If you're a Christian and you see the war of the worlds, you kind of see it through the eyes of Jesus, and you decide you're going to engage in it, you see yourself as a soldier, how are you different as a spiritual warrior, as a holy warrior? Well, the difference, friends, is in the types of weapons we use. The difference is in how you fight. It is the means of our warfare. That's what's radically different about you. So Paul will describe it like this in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4. The weapons we fight with are not carnal. Sarks in the original Greek, this flesh idea. They're not physical, is what he's saying. They're not of this world. They're not guns, you understand? The weapons we fight with are not tanks, they're not armies. On the contrary, despite them not being physical, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. And we'll talk about what that means in just a second. So here we have the kinds of weapons we're talking about. These are spiritual weapons. So if we're soldiers and our weapons aren't physical, then what are they exactly? We want to know. And they are listed, actually, a couple of times in a less uh, often quoted verse. The kinds of weapons are listed in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 8. Here's what Paul says. He says, but since we are of the day, we must be sober and put on, and here's his metaphor, we must put on the armor of faith and love on our chests like a breastplate in the original Greek, uh, as a a breastplate, and put on a helmet of the hope of salvation. When I read this verse, what I realize is that you scan the rest of the New Testament, you realize that these three big ideas, um, faith, love, salvation, they kind of constitute suites of arms, as it were, in this spiritual battle. Faith, love, salvation. Now, I know many of you know that Paul will elaborate on these weapons in Ephesians 6. And actually, if you look there in Ephesians 6, he actually labels them differently. Uh, So faith is a shield in Ephesians and a breastplate. And the breastplate is righteousness in Ephesians. Here in Thessalonians, faith and love are the breastplate. But in both, helmet is a salvation. What is a helmet is salvation. What does that tell you? It tells you that this is a flexible illustration for Paul. And uh, I think we should look at it that way too. In fact, if you wanted to summarize all the armor, all the inventory that you read in Ephesians 6 and in 1 Thessalonians, you just got one thing, and that's put on Christ. Because Christ is everything. Christ is righteousness. Christ is the word. Christ is our faith, our shield. The whole thing is all just put on Christ. So this is a flexible metaphor in Paul's mind. But in both places it comes up, all the weapons uh, fall under these categories. And you see it in the rest of the letters as well. So faith represents a life of prayer. And love is equated with social action. And salvation is equated with truth-telling and the mission of evangelism in this world. 
So you've got prayer and social action and evangelism kind of summarized in one verse here. And if you want a picture of it, i got a little movie clip for you from The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe where Susan and Lucy and Peter are given gifts by Father Christmas. And if you look at the gifts that they're given, they kind of represent spiritual armor and arms in spiritual warfare. Let's watch. Since you have arrived. Look, I've been up with a lot since I got here. But this... We thought you were the witch. Yes. Sorry about that, but uh, in my defense, I have been driving one of these longer than the witch. I thought there was no Christmas in Narnia. No. Not for a long time. But the hope that you have brought your majesties is finally starting to weaken the witch's power. Still, I dare say you could do with these. Presents! <laughs> the juice of the fire flower. One drop will cure any injury. And though I hope you never have to use it. Thank you, sir. I'm sure you could. Battles are ugly affairs. Susan. Trust in this bow, and it will not easily miss. What happened to battles are ugly affairs? <laughs> Though you don't seem to have a problem making yourself heard, blow on this, and wherever you are, help will come. Thanks. Peter. The time to use these may be near at hand. Thank you, sir. These are tools, not toys. Bear them well and wisely. Ah. It's a cool picture, isn't it? And I'd like us to see in those three uh, gifts given to the children a set of uh, three different suites of arms. So with Peter's sword, you have a weapon of offense. And this, I think, represents well the ways in which we war with truth and our message of truth in a hard world converting the soul. And I think when you have Lucy's uh, cordial, you have that little vial, it represents the ways in which we are healers in this world. And we bring love to a broken planet. And then Susan's horn represents a call for help. And it's the heart of faith that can pray and brings God's power to bear on this broken and uh, besieged world. So let's talk about those three different suites of ideas. So we connect uh, Peter's sword to salvation because sword is offense. Now I know in Ephesians chapter 6, Paul says, verse 17, take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So already the sword has a bunch of different 
meanings. It can mean the spirit, it can mean the word of God. So it's a flexible illustration here. It's synonymous with many things. The word, and the word in the Bible is synonymous with the gospel. The spirit's inner nudge is synonymous with the conviction of the world uh, concerning the truth. And salvation comes from obeying the truth. So you have uh, in this kind of suite of arms here, uh, they, all, they all revolve around one big idea, and that's the truth. So that means we are engaged. This is how we fight. We are engaged in the battle when we receive the truth about Jesus Christ, when we dispense the truth about Jesus Christ, and when we apply the truth about Jesus Christ in direct opposition to lies and falsehoods that are put on us by the world. So evangelism then, this practice that Christians have of trying to win others into the Christian faith is an act of warfare. Now let's not forget what Paul will say in another letter, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. He says, Satan, who is the god of this world, again, this presumption of cosmic conflict, has blinded the minds of those who don't believe. And I review, we talked about this last week a little bit. Jesus yanks us out of the matrix. The truth will set you free. And as soon as we are liberated from the lies, the distortions that we believed, we too, as the Bible says, were under the same spell, then God sends us right back in. Yanks us out, sends us back in. Why? It's a mission of liberation. And I get that this sounds condescending but this is not an arrogant thing it's a generous thing because christians remember we were there we understand we know what it was like drinking the kool-aid right when i say drinking the kool-aid you all you all know understand what that means that means imbibing the ideas the values that are prevalent out there this is what the bible is referring to when they said the god of this world has blinded the minds of those who don't believe there is a zeitgeist that's a german phrase you guys know what that means right literally the time ghost That's what that means in German, the zeitgeist. It means the spirit of the times. And every culture has its own lies that it believes that are the spirit of the times, the zeitgeist. Those big ideas, the ideologies, the values, the corrupt systems of thought that the Bible is very clear are fueled by spiritual evil, the time ghost. And so what are those, those great big lies? Well, in our day, we can, I think, identify them having been liberated from the matrix a little bit by the word of God. Materialism. And I don't mean the, the um, atheistic kind, I mean the greed kind, like that I will be happy if I just had the right stuff or if I just had more stuff, right? That's, that's, that is a lie. And then you see some of the most wealthy people, the, most people, the people most inundated with fame and fortune, and they're miserable, and sometimes, yes, taking their own lives. It's a lie, we believe it. Oh, hedonism. You know, if you just had the right amount of pleasure, man, you would be happy. And if you could just throw off enough restraints, then life's true meaning would come into focus. The porn industry is driven by this lie. And the sex trafficking industry, which is driven by the porn industry, which is driven by hedonism, the spirit of our times, is enslaving literally millions of people around the world. It sucks up billions of dollars of of revenue, and it enslaves minds, wrecks, marriages, families, you name it. This is spiritual evil. Relativism, the idea that that all truth claims are equally false. Division, the spirit of our time, the zeitgeist, divisiveness, factualism, tribalism, nobody's right except me and my own tiny little circle. And everybody else is an enemy that is justifiably uh, thrown under the bus violently if needs be. The spirit of our times, friends. So what is happening then 
when you who have been liberated from the zeitgeist, you've been liberated from the spirit of our times, you go back in and have significant relationship and significant conversations with people who do not consider Christianity to be true. You are at war with God. What's happening when that really significant talk, you know, where matters of the heart come up, the question about what is true comes up. When you help to remove the veil off, off of false beliefs, when you, yes, gently and respectfully, and yet nevertheless, firmly suggest to a good friend whom you love that they are probably mistaken about Jesus of Nazareth. What is happening when you do that? You are warring with God. You are wielding the sword of truth. And all of this is spiritual warfare. Here's how Paul will describe it. Again, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, that part where he says, look, our weapons are spiritual, they're not physical. He goes on. The weapons we use in our fight destroy people's defenses, that is, their arguments and all their intellectual arrogance that oppose the knowledge of God. That's what's happening. And that's why I believe strongly that the Christian uh, has to be armed with a base amount of defenses for their faith because we're throwing you as followers of Jesus into the zeitgeist. We're throwing you into the world that has imbibed false ideas. And if you don't have some defense against that, well, you're kind of a sitting duck. So part of what you do when you arm yourself with truth is you get ready for a defense against the intellectual arrogance, the proud ideas is is how that goes in the original Greek, the proud ideas that set themselves up against the knowledge of God. So that high-stakes conversation you had with your friend about matters of the heart, spiritual war. When you talked to your coworker about God, the meaning of life, about eternity, about peace of mind, there was a raging battle going on over that moment. Do you realize that? Do you realize why it's so difficult for you to engage, initiate that, that first sentence into the spiritual conversation? Isn't that hard for you? And you say, well, I'm a shy person. Yes, some of you are not so shy. I've met you. What's going on? spiritual warfare. There is a resistance that's going to be felt to engage in matters of the heart that relate to truth. But friend, you have been called to be a warrior wielding a sword of the word. You say, well, I'm not an arguer. You don't have to be an arguer. You don't have to be a debate team captain. You don't have to be a a, a high-powered apologist. Look, you have a word, the truth of your story. Once you were blind and now you see. You don't know all the creeds. You don't know everything about this way of life that you have entered into when you accepted Jesus and went under the waters of baptism. You don't get it all. I get it. But you have your own grace encounter, which now becomes the word of truth about God's saving grace in your life. And that is a sword which you can wield. You tell your story, you are engaging in cosmic conflict. So that's our job, to be soldiers with swords. That is to say, people of the truth. And truth brings salvation. Jesus said, the truth will set you free, receiving it, giving it away. So will you commit with me? I get how difficult this is. Will you commit with me to praying about this, praying for open doors with your friend, with your coworker, with that family member. You know the one I'm talking about, the one who's investigating the faith or maybe is right now pretty hostile to faith in God. Would you commit and say, God, will you help me to be your warrior for truth? Because the truth will set my friend free. And you start to think about it like that and you start getting on God's page like that. Second thing you can do is tool yourself up in this area. When the church offers gifts, or not gifts, classes on this, 
you start to uh, say, I got I to gotta get better at this. All right, here's the second thing, a second suite of arms, okay? And that's love. You remember Lucy's gift, right? Cordial. This vial, which is a, a vial of healing potion to use in the battle to heal those wounded in the war. This is the armor of love, and love heals. We said last week that Satan can affect the world, like he can really affect the world in real ways for our destruction, deception, and the whole thing. What that implies, friends, is that he is the ultimate, if not the proximate cause of much of the suffering in the world. And I don't think you'll debate me on this. If you just think about the, the amount of suffering that follows the zeitgeist, right? Just follow the spirit of our times and think about the massive amount of destruction that's imposed based on believing lies just in one area alone, just in the area of sex, for example. Destroys families, leads to poverty, untold misery, okay? So what is the cordial? It's our New Testament mandate to love. And when we love, we are pushing back on the forces of hell. When you love, when you heal, when you are the solve, when you are the bomb, which is healing bomb, not the atomic kind, okay? When you, are, when you are the bomb, when we Christians are the medicine for the wound of the world, we are directly attacking the kingdom of this present darkness. If we believe that this present darkness is the ultimate, if not the proximate cause of much of the suffering in the world, then when we alleviate suffering, we're warring, aren't we? Remember, friends, when Jesus announced the kingdom, he announced it not just as the preaching of good news of God's acceptance and forgiveness to the destitute and the sinful. He also preached it as sight, the recovery of sight for the blind, healing for the sick, freedom for the prisoners. So friends, understand something. Every act of compassion motivated by love is an act of war. Every dollar that you sent down to help the victims of Hurricane Harvey, warfare. By the way, I read two articles now this week that said the Christian church outdid FEMA in terms of money and people helped in the arrangement of the, um, of the mission in the aftermath. The church was just there with convoys of trucks and trucks of people and helpers and material goods to help those devastated by natural disaster to get back on their feet. It was an awesome demonstration of the vial, and we war with this vial of love. Every dollar you donate to AC3 that keeps compassion flowing in our community through our distribution center, our farmer's market, helping the under-resourced, our transitional housing program, which is lifting people literally out of poverty and into production and productive membership in society. This is warfare. Whenever you build, heal, help, nurse, restore, mend, you curse the curse. And that's the end game, friends. You understand that, right? So here at the beginning of the human story, we are brought down in traitorous rebellion against God with our enemy, our mortal enemy. And, and, and the whole thing falls under curse. But God will not be undone. He is going to reverse the curse. So every time you give a cup of cold water in Jesus' name, you are looking forward to the finished work of Jesus, which will restore this and reverse the curse. I think about it from... John's Revelation, chapter 22, verse 3. And the leaves of the tree of life are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. When you work for that day, you war. You're at war. Then there's a third category of weaponry, a third suite of arms, and that is those that have to do with faith, which is connected to prayer. See, Susan, she gets a horn, right? And what's the horn for? 
to call out for help in the middle of battle. So when the spiritual weapons are listed, the inventory is given in Ephesians 6, Paul connects faith and prayer. Watch this. Uh, Ephesians 6, verse 16 through 18. In every battle, you will need faith as your shield to stop the fiery arrows aimed at you by Satan. And pray at all times and on every occasion in the power of the Holy Spirit. Stay alert and be persistent in your prayers for all Christians everywhere. So in the same context of faith, Paul mentions prayer. And by the way, Jesus did this all the time. He connected faith and prayer, faith and prayer all the time. I'll summarize just one instance from Mark chapter 9. Go back and read the whole story. I'll condense it for you. Here's a man. He comes to Jesus with a demonized son. And he's in trouble. He froths at the mouth and the son will repeatedly throw himself into fires or throw himself into water and would die if not for people being around him to quickly rescue him from the horrible oppression that's on him. So he comes to Jesus and he asks him a question. He says, if you can do anything, will you help me? And Jesus, I love how he just turns it back on him. He says, wait a minute, if I can do anything. Look, that's an interesting question for me. But the question is not about my power. The question in this moment is about your faith. Do you believe? That's the question. It's not about if me, it's about if you. And so the man, I love his response. It's so beautifully transparent. I, I do. I believe. I believe, but I don't. I don't. I don't believe. Here's how it goes down in the original Greek. He says, I do believe. Help me in my unbelief. So what he's trying to say is, I got, I got faith. I do. I see that you're different. You're the messianic figure. You go around healing. I, I believe that God is represented in you in some beautiful and profound way i believe but i struggle with the reality of my son which i've lived with since he was born the devastating effects of evil in his life it, it just over this overwhelms my sight so my faith is really small lord jesus it's just tiny it's like the, the smallest thing you could imagine like a like a mustard seed that'll do that'll do and Jesus heals the boy. Now, I want to bring you to this idea of faith and prayer. Because the disciples are miffed, man. They're kind of like, what? Hey, what? why couldn't we do this? The man had come to the disciples first for exorcism, and they couldn't get it done. And so they asked Jesus, why, why, how did, how did it, why did it not work for us? They seemed to have been maybe full of their sense of their own authority. Jesus said, when resisting forces in the spiritual realm like this, he said, you need more faith, more prayer, more fasting. And by the way, the d different um, manuscripts will include some of those words and not others. And the different gospels will include some of those words and not of others in recounting the same story. Faith, prayer, fasting. What does that tell you? That tells me that those terms are all synonymous. Prayer is faith personified. And Fasting is the personification of faith brought to your prayer life. Now think about that. Jesus is saying in our war against spiritual forces of evil, requests offered in faith, persistent prayers, and earnest fasting before God are acts of warfare against the enemy. So there's a whole suite of weaponry for you, which is the idea of in faith, you're calling out in confidence in the power of God to effect real change in the face of evil. So quite literally, when you press the horn to your lips and call out for help, you're acting out in faith. And Jesus said, with that kind of faith, he says, you may ask 
for, uh, ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. Now, it's critical to understand that when Jesus says he'll grant any request, he has this caveat, right? And the caveat is, in my name. What's Jesus doing in giving us the horn here is what he's saying is, here, I'm giving you the horn. I've got all the power on my, no questions on my side of the table. got all the power. Now the questions are on your side. Will you call out in faith and prayer when you're in need? Will you join me in my work in the world? I wait sometimes to be freely wanted. I wait for warriors who care what I care about, care about what I care about. I wait to respond to those who trust me, who will represent me on behalf of a broken world. And by the way, God does this from the beginning of the story all the way to the end. In the creation mandate, he says, here's what I do. I make stuff. I create, and it's good. Now, here you. Go, rule, subdue, tend, and care. Do what I do. And on the Mount of Olives in Matthew chapter 28, God says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to call a people from every nation into my forever family. Now you, my disciples, go and join me in my work in this world. This is just what God does. In prayer, that's what he's saying. He's gifting you the gift of the horn. He's saying, here it is. Join me. Will you join me? And when you call out for God's help, you are joining him in his work in this world. Jesus would encourage people to pray. He encourages you to pray when you just read it in the Gospels and you read him saying to another individual, what do you want me to do for you? (laughs) Can you imagine Jesus said that to you? What do you want me to do for you? He's like a genie. Wow, the son of God. I get a wish? Woo, this is awesome. And ixnay on the wishing for more wishes. Okay, so what do you want me to do for you? Well, what do I want? Now, I want you to imagine that you heard that through the context of a soldier on the battlefield, right? And imagine what all the things that the soldier could ask for. What do you want? Yep, this is, uh, this is uh, Central Command. What do you want me to do for you? Oh, wow, this is Central Command? Um, I would like a trip home, please. I would like a better cot. Yeah, I'd like a tent that doesn't leak. And could you please uh, get me out of here? Uh, also, a Hummer, yeah, with 22-inch, yeah, with the spinners. Yes, I'd like that too, please. See, that's one soldier who could be, you know, getting requests on the battlefield. Now, is that soldier really committed to the cause for which he is fighting? Is he really making requests in the name of his commanding officer? No, he's sending requests for stuff that have nothing to do with his commission as a soldier. If he has no faith in the commander, if he has no faith in the cause, that's going to affect his requests. And there it shows up in the things he's asking for. And will that not show up in the answers? I say yes. But what if he does have faith in the commander? And what if he does believe in the cause? Then will that not affect his requests? He will start asking for different things. I would like more air cover. We need better intelligence over here. We need more supplies and resources for the fight. We need ammo. We need armor. We need more reinforcements. Now, friends, how many of us are the first soldier? And your prayer life reflects it. Oh, God, please give me this parking spot right now. Dear Lord, please smite that driver in the love of Jesus. Right? And so your requests reflect a petty concern for your own comfort alone. Friends, what if you were a soldier? 
what would you be asking for? You'd be asking for different things. God, reveal yourself to my friend. I mean, I know, I know you're at work in his life. I know you're wooing him. You love him more than I love him. Lord, open a door for me to have a significant conversation with him. Lord, heal my friend. Beat back the curse in her body. God, protect my daughter from the evil one's influence. She is surrounded by so many voices. There's so much confusion around her right now. Lord, protect her mind. God, give us courage to sacrifice financially for your causes in this world. You've blessed us with so much. Lord, help us to, to sacrifice, to reach, to, to live differently because we believe in your causes in this world. You need support, friend. Then you ask for it. You say, Rick, I don't have a lot of faith. I just have a little, little bit. That'll do. That'll do. As a sophomore in college, I remember when this first came clear to me that prayer was warfare. I had a tiny little bit of faith that my brother, my older brother, would ever come to faith in the Lord Jesus. I mean, he had kind of been a rebel. He had been deeply, heavily involved with alcohol and the whole party scene since he was 15 years old. I was about, um, let's see, what was I? I was 18. He's um, 21 at the time. So I'm part of a prayer group, and they, you know, what's the, what's the request? What are the requests around the table? I say, well, I guess we could pray for my brother. He's kind of off the rails. And not really thinking much about what might happen with this whole thing because I had no faith. I mean, very little, just a little mustard seed, just enough to say, well, let's pray for him. What's the worst that could happen, right? That's kind of the attitude. It's really, really horrible. Um, so now the prayer group meets every week, and now it's a matter of me bringing reports from home. Um, so what's going on with Darwin? That's my brother. And I say, um, well, it's actually getting a little worse. He's really fallen out of relationship with my parents altogether. There's some deep division going on in the home. Next report. This is around uh, October, November. What's going on now? Well, actually, he's moved. He, he moved to Calgary. thought he got a job there, and um, he moved there uh, with his girlfriend. They're going to shack up. Oh, okay. So uh, next month, what's, uh, what's your report now? Well, he lost his job, and he got caught for drunk while driving, so DUI. And uh, it's like, are, are we praying him into hell? Like, what are we doing? It doesn't seem to be any effect, or it's, all the effect seems to be negative. So uh, in January, um, we keep praying. We keep getting negative reports. Finally, I hear from mom. She says, you know what, Darwin, he thinks you might be coming home for some odd reason. And uh, we only found out the reason a little bit later. So I saw him on the way back home. Uh, he had left his sort of like the, the, the land where, you know, wine, women, and song. And he was on his way home. And he looked like death warm over. We saw him for one visit. And my wife and I uh, had a little a coffee with him. And um, he looked like hell just dark eyes and just a blank stare and it just like he was under some kind of horrible cloud. He makes it home and we realize he's come home because he got caught for uh, a DUI again and was going to face a prison sentence. So he went to prison and served that time in February of that year. He got released in February. I get the new report for the prayer team in March. What's going on with Darn? Well, actually, now he's home he's out of prison, and uh, mom and dad say he's got a new group of friends at the church. He said, really? Wow. Next month, end of March, what's the report now? Well, um, looks like he's dating the pastor's daughter. 
Wow. Next report, this is in the beginning of April. Mom and dad, uh, you know, just weekly call, and they say, you know what? We've really mended the fences with Darwin. It's amazing. It feels like he really wants to make amends, and God's doing something. Week of final exams, end of April. So we've been praying from September through April. I get a phone call. I'm in, at my, in my sister's apartment. We're in the living room, and the phone rings, and I answer the phone. It's Darwin. Rick, and I just wanted you to know that I became a Christian. Yeah, I accepted Jesus. I'm going to get baptized this spring. And we wept and cried on that living room floor. And we realized that we had been warring for him for eight months. He was hundreds of miles away, and we were with him the whole time, praying for him, fighting with the God who loves him, who is fighting for him and beating back all the spirits of this age to affect and to see real change and for his eyes to be open and for grace to be infused into his life. Friend, do you realize what privilege you have? Do you realize what's been given to you? The sword and the vial and the horn. And so with these, will you not with me join God in his work in this world, instead of just cursing the darkness, will you with me get active and proactive instead of blaming God, instead of blaming flesh and blood? Maybe you would join me in warfare. And you would be with me a soldier with God in his purposes in this world to make all things new until he comes again and does finish the job that he began. Let's pray. Father, I ask that we would take up the sword, bringing the word, the word which frees, the truth which sets people free and brings to them your amazing saving grace and the renewing of their minds. Lord, may we with the cordial bring your healing love wherever we find it, wherever we see the curse. Lord, may we bring the good deeds of the kingdom of God and so reverse the curse. And Lord, with the horn, may we with faithful prayer, with believing prayer, and every act inspired by faith, Lord, may we bring your power to bear on all the places where darkness has risen. And may we then join you in your work until you come again. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, fellow soldiers, thanks for taking in this challenge of immortal combat this whole month.